Welcome to the Enneagram Journey. My guest today is my friend Nadia Bolz-Weber. She's an aide on the Enneagram, an astonishing writer, a woman who's accomplished a great deal uh, for people who are marginalized and looking for their place. She, uh, in her eightness, has been seeking justice since I met her, and she seeks it now in different ways sometimes. So I'm uh, so excited that you're on the Enneagram journey, and I am going to try really hard to uh, listen far more than I talk. Sometimes when we're together, I get to talking too much, and uh, I want everybody to get to hear you. So I want to start with this question. What would you say is the most valuable thing the Enneagram has offered you? Mm. I think honest self-assessment in the sense of uh, sometimes our opinions of ourselves can devolve into really unhealthy self-loathing. And I feel that also we can err on the side of uh, absurd positivity. Like, like we can't, we shouldn't ever feel bad about anything about ourselves. And well, that's not entirely true either. If you believe in sin, right? Like we all have stuff that, that, um, you know, we all have a a dark side and we all have a light side. So I think the Enneagram has given me language for what my theology already was, honestly, which is that Mm -hmm. we're simultaneously sinner and saint. I have that tattooed in Latin on my wrist, right? Yeah. Similar used to set peccator. So this idea that, that we have that we have this sort of dual nature in a sense. And the Enneagram gives me just incredible language for that reality in my life and other people's lives. Yeah, you know, I, I think I uh I can remember when I was younger over apologizing for the weaknesses in my tunis mm. and overvaluing the strengths in my tunis <laughs> and i wonder if that kind of comparison within ourselves leads us to uh comparison with others which always leads to competition which always mm. leads to winners and losers mm. i get to live with somebody who loves me really well and he's kind of helped me find the middle of all that. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have any room for me putting myself down unnecessarily. And he doesn't make any room for me to think that I'm just the greatest thing that ever happened. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that space that's, in the middle is nice. Yeah, that's that's real love, actually. Yeah, I think so, too. I think mm-hmm. so, too. Yeah. So uh, we were together at Why Christian, and uh, thank you again for inviting me to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite something. It's very, yeah. very hard to describe to people who weren't there, which yeah. says a lot about it as an event. Yeah. And you, in your introduction, talked about how you are approaching 50. Mm-hmm. And you've had so much life experience. And there are a lot of new people who listen to the podcast who might not know you and who don't know a ton about the Enneagram they're learning. Can you uh, talk about the evolution of your eightness in your journey? (laughs) Sometimes we get these opportunities in life where we suddenly 
our given language for something we knew was already true. And I feel like that's what happened when I started learning about the Enneagram. Must have been about 10 years ago. Was I was listening to someone describe the numbers. And as soon as they, and I could recognize other people in what they were describing. And then as soon as they started describing the eights, I couldn't stop cringing. I couldn't stop cringing because I knew what they were saying was true. And so I think that when I was young, my um, steamrolling people, taking over situations I was not asked to take over, um, blurting out my opinions in such a strong way that it hurt people and me not even being aware of it, all of those things uh, were just in full force without me being aware that I was even doing it in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as soon as I started hearing about the, an, the Enneagram 8-ness, I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And slowly over the last decade, I've begun to see what I do when I'm not thinking and sometimes have the option, <laughs> like I've realized some things, even though they're my tendency, they're my wiring, it's how I made up, mm-hmm. are optional. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, oh my gosh. What like, oh, what a relief, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so I think before I was just doing things and reacting to everything around me in a certain way and not feeling like I could do anything else. It didn't ever feel optional. It's Mm -hmm. just how I was, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the more you wade into this, you realize, you see how you are, Mm -hmm. and then you also go, well, I could maybe make a a little bit of a different choice. And boy, that's just freedom. Now, your wiring never changes, right? You just have some more freedom around it. It's not in the driver's seat all the damn time. Yeah, it, you know, my way of talking about that is that once you're on a spiritual journey, you can choose whether or not to take the, sh- the spiritual path or the personality-driven path. And frequently mm. we take the personality-driven path. Oh, yeah. In the 10 years that, 10, have we been friends for 10 years? Yes. Christianity 21 has to have been 10 years ago, right? It's pretty, pretty close, nine maybe. Yeah. yeah. I would say that uh, I think you have observed that I've been able to strengthen my way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And I have observed your ways of softening your way of being in the world. For sure. And I, um, you know, I always say that the one danger of the Enneagram is that you take it to be more than it is. It's just one thing. I think the Enneagram has something to do with my strengthening and your softening. But yeah. what else has has softened you as a female eight? And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not too into gender difference in the Enneagram, but there's a big difference in how yeah. the world receives male eights and female eights. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, lots of female eights, young ones especially, feel like they've been told to soften, mm. and so they just don't, right? It's like my response yeah. to that is no. Yeah. So what other things in life have you experienced as an eight that have softened you and why? 
Well, one answer is just age. Uh, but one answer is definitely, I, you know, I was um, in a, in a marriage that I was not happy in. And, um, and so to part ways with that, uh, without acrimony, honestly, I mean, I think we had the friendliest divorce in history, we had no lawyers involved or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but um, to be, you know, I've, I've been with my boyfriend for almost two years now. And I think having somebody having real intimacy in my life and um, emotional, sexual, spiritual intimacy has allowed me to feel like I don't have to protect myself all the time. So I think doing like really intense CrossFit for years was almost like me saying I like my body needed to be indestructible because if it was, then I would be indestructible and I would be unhurtable, you know? Yep. And, um, and I think just having uh, this one person who um, cares for me so deeply, quite apart from the way everybody else likes or loves me, you know, mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. particular and sees parts of me no one else does has allowed me to feel safer in the world in some way because I don't feel like I'm going I'm going it alone you know independence has been my blessing and curse in a way and and there's this vulnerability to it I mean the thing that about about being loved well is it can kind of sting because it reminds you of the ways you've not loved well, or the times in your life that you haven't had it. Mm -hmm. But also, you can always lose it. You know, I mean, yeah. there, there, that vulnerability. So it's just cracked me open, you know, and everything about me just feels softer. It's so interesting, because when I, uh, years ago, Joe and I've been married for 31 years now. But when I came out of my first marriage, uh, my response was exactly the opposite. Sure. My response was, I'm not going to be vulnerable again ever. Like, I'm done mm -hmm. with that. So I can take care of myself, and I intend to. And here's how I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I lost such an important part of myself trying to do that, uh, I think. So um, is softness a word that works for you? What, what word would you use? Yeah. yeah, I've been using that word, partly because also like um, my body is noticeably softer. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. Really, that's fascinating. And, you know, my hair is long and I mean, just it, 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 I think it just is feels kind of obvious almost, you know? Yeah. Um, but but it, but also one of the things that I feel like is is going on for me is how I how I relate to my own personality has shifted recently in the fact that I'm I'm in maybe it's because my tenure is ending at House for All Sinners and Saints and it's given me time to reflect but I feel like for the first time I'm really looking honestly at the wreckage in the wake of my strong will mm. that um, it's almost like I have a superpower that I can, 
I have this thing like, look, if someone can do it, I can do it. Right. I, I never look at something and go, I couldn't do that. Right. Like I just yeah. think, oh, I could do it. I could make anything happen, you know, and, and starting a church from scratch is the hardest thing I've ever done. And it took all, all my focus and will and my, my heart and my passion and everything to do it. And yet, because there wasn't a softness there, because there wasn't an ability to, to bend a bit, I think the hardness of my driving will, some people got hurt by. Mm-hmm. And in a way that I couldn't, I, it's almost like I couldn't see it at the time or mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to see it at the time. There you go. I needed to not see it in order to just keep my focus, just keep driving. And now that I'm moving on, it's almost like I can see some of these things and and look at them straight in the eye and go, oh, wow, I don't want to be like that again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to be given to morbid reflection necessarily, but it's almost like I'm going to put the cape down now. Like, I, I don't want to be like that, even though I could do, like, if I, if I wanted to be some corporate woman who was like driven and made something happen and like worked 70 hours a week and got on time, like I could do it. I have the capacity, but it's almost like I'm seeing, okay, yeah, that gets a lot done, but it also costs. Um, and so it's almost like I, at my age, I just want to put my cape down and go, I know I could power through and make anything happen if I really put my passion and focus into it, but like, I'm just not willing to anymore. Um, I want to explore something with you to see if you think I've done the right thing or if I need to adapt it a bit. I've been uh, asked and frequently to speak to groups of women pastors. And uh, recently I, I did an event for the Rev Gal bloggers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're across denominations and across the country, and they all blog, and they're all yeah. women in ministry. They're, and they're awesome. They are awesome. <laughs> they are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I was going to spend three days with them, and you know, people ask me for a topic, and I, I, I'm not good at topics generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I chose what brought you here won't keep you here. Mm. Hmm. And it's my experience in listening to women in ministry mm. uh, that mm. they had to come with a cape to get a church. Sure. To get a good position in ministry, sure, 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 sure. right? No yeah, cape, yeah. then, then your dreams are going to be limited for sure. Mm. And yet, uh, long term, there has to be a, a a difference in what got you someplace and and how you're going to stay there because the right. expectations seem to change, right? Uh, sure, yeah. So. Um, I just want to make sure you think that's accurate before I keep doing it because I'm not a woman in ministry, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's, I think, I I sense like there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I, what I want to see for my fellow women in ministry, I'll just say this, is that they get a show up with the fullness of who they are. Yep, yep. And that means the parts of them that are 
that are softer, Mm -hmm. the parts of them that are stronger, the parts of them that are hilarious, the parts of them that are a little sad, right? That they get to show up with all of that instead of feeling like, okay, I need to curate the parts of myself that are strong so that people can't push me around, you know what I, you know, and, and sort of pick and choose. Sometimes the most sort of stereotypically male parts of you. Yeah. You know, because look, 2000 years of male domination in the church, that doesn't go away by a few decades of ordaining women. No, it does not. Right. It for sure doesn't. It for sure does not. But I think for us to really walk into the fullness of these gifts that we have um, in terms of being women in ministry, I hope that congregations become safe places for women in ministry to bring their whole selves to them. Yeah. And I, and I often don't see that just because they're quote willing to call a a female pastor uh, doesn't mean they're willing to have a a woman in ministry be her full self. Yeah. You know, Joe, um, people who listen to this may not know that my husband, Joe is a former Catholic priest and it's, Interesting to me that we were, I'm trying to think how many years ago, 27, maybe 27, 26 years ago, we were appointed to a rural Texas church and, um, they were, um, not very happy with Joe. They kind of had their own thing going and he messed that up in terms Mm -hmm. of theology and Mm -hmm. really believing in God in, in three parts, persons, you know, the whole thing. One day I overheard uh, one man say to another man, both in leadership in that church, well, I hate that he's Catholic, but at least he's not a woman. <laughs> so I wonder how many of those people who say we'll take a woman uh, yeah, right. are mm. saying we would rather have a woman than yeah. this, this, or this. Right. Yeah, I know. Right. I know. Yeah. yeah. But also, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but misogyny is something that um, will take a very long time to root out of ourselves yeah. and our churches, yeah. even if, even if cosmetically we say, "Oh no," you know, we believe yeah. in all of this. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that the election went the way it did, quite apart from people having this deep-rooted sort of distaste for women. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I definitely think that's part yeah. of that story. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't buy the narrative. I mean, I can't imagine if Hillary Clinton was the one who was just a reality TV star with no experience in politics, but she really paid attention to the work to white working class people's concerns that she would have been um, elected. Yeah. You, you know yeah. what I mean? There, there's yeah. no way. So, um, I mean, obviously, it was a very complex thing, but. Part of it really was that deep-seated, you know, hatred or distrust of women. Yeah, which has led to so much that's being uncovered in our days, which Mm -hmm. is very fascinating to watch. It's fascinating. It's interesting to know that we're only a part of the conversation, that whatever comes next, we won't even be here for, right? Like this is our part, our turn to say something. Well, you know, I will say this in terms of being a woman, an eight- who is, um, I, I've had a, I've had a complicated relationship with the term feminist oh, as interesting. An, because there've been periods of my life 
when I was very, I was very much surrounded by other women. I had very strong female friendships. I've been in performance art groups that were feminist in my twenties. I, um, you know, I was really strong, had strong female friendships with, you know, sort of rode in those circles. And then there was a period where I really didn't. And I've realized that, uh, because I have what some would consider to be almost like a more stereotypically male personality in some ways mm-hmm. that um, I've had to deal with my own internalized misogyny when I look at the way other women are. Yeah. And there were times in my, in my uh, early career as a pastor that I felt like I was really dismissive of other female clergy in a particular way, Mm -hmm. because they seemed to have a chip on their shoulders about certain things that I felt like maybe I didn't. Anyway, but that was also a time I recognized when I was not surrounded by a lot of strong female friendships. Yeah, yeah. And so when, when I have had strong, strong female friendships, I have been Uh, much more compassionate about the way the world treats women. Mm -hmm. Because when you're six foot one and have a very, very strong personality and you're a strong leader, you are not treated like a girl in a lot of ways that other women are. And so my lived experience is slightly different than a lot of other women. And instead of having compassion for that, I sort of felt like I was above their struggles and um, during a certain period of my life. And I look back on that and I, I, I have regret there, honestly. Um, and because now that I have these really strong female friendships again in my life, I have a lot more compassion for the way the world treats women. Yeah. Uh, quite apart from the way I happen to be treated. Mm-hmm. So when uh, Richard Rohr wrote uh, Falling Upward, Joe and I were very taken with that and began to kind of explore our lives and look at what the second half of life had to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, about five years into that, though, we began to say for us, and it may not be true for everybody, but for us that more than life being divided into the first half and the second half, what we really find ourselves living is we're now in the third third of life. Mm. I'm 67 and Joe is about to be 71. And Mm -hmm. this is the third, third for us. And it doesn't, Mm. it's not the same as the second half, right? It's the third, third. So uh, if that sounds somewhat true to you in terms of looking at life in terms of thirds, what uh, do you want the third, third of your life to look like? Well, I guess I kind of struggle a little bit with those kind of questions because I think if you asked me when I was 20 what I'd want my life to look like when I was 40, I only had the accumulated wisdom of a 20-year-old. And so I think I would probably be like, well, I hope I'm still going to punk rock shows and sleeping around with people (laughs) I wait tables with at this restaurant. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Things do change, Um, don't they? (laughs) Um. And I guess so I have caution with answering that kind of question. Okay, well, let me change the question. I'll change the question. Okay. Uh, What do you want the next five years to look like? Mm. Well, I definitely sense that I'm stepping in to a different kind of vocation in terms of I've 
I, I end up preaching to the Gentiles more and more these days. Uh, you know? Yeah. Uh, I end up speaking at events that aren't Christian conferences more. And, uh, and the response is just crazy, which actually has very little to do with me particularly. I think it has more to do with the power of the, the gospel, the perennial wisdom within Christianity is something that can be life-giving to people who are never going to have the high Christology I have, people who might not be theists, people certainly who aren't going to step into a church. You know, I think increasingly I'm just wondering, I'm like, why is it the only chance you hear have of hearing the gospel is if you show up at a church? Right. Like it feels unfair, you know, like church only has an appeal to certain kinds of people. And I had to start one from scratch. I'd be willing to show up to, you know, and so it's like if the only chance you had of hearing Mozart's if you're in a dentist chair, you know, like yeah, it's gonna, yeah. there'll be pain, you know, fear, you might be shamed for your behavior while you're sitting there, you might hear Mozart, right? right <laughs> so right. I think I just, when I'm in these situations where I'm speaking and people are responding like so powerfully, it's like they didn't know they needed a preacher until they heard a sermon. Right. And so I just feel like I'm, I'm being... I end, I've just stepping into that more and more. I mean, it's crazy. That video makers made about me just talking about forgiveness, which, uh, by the way, not an original thing. That's just Jesus, right? Right. Um, Two-minute video of me talking about Jesus has been seen over six and a half million times in six days. Yep. So people are hungry, you know, and I feel like this – this wisdom we have, this message that that Jesus has given us and that God has given us in Jesus is uh, is too precious to be to be put under the bushel of cultural Christianity, and um, and so I I, I know I want to be doing more of that. So I want my almost like my professional life. I think might be expanding while my personal life is contracting. So I spend a lot of time alone uh, very happily now. Mm -hmm. um, I spend most of my time with only a couple people. Um, you know, like my personal life has gotten more, more personal. Yeah, yeah. And smaller. And for me, that combination really works. And it's interesting because the Every time you put yourself out there publicly, um, you're just fodder for other people's criticisms. And nothing gives people more joy these days than pointing out why something that people seem to be enjoying and celebrating is actually wrong, right? Like, yeah, that's it's just so a, crazy. That's crazy yeah, and, to me. And so there's a group of theologians and authors and pastors, apparently I haven't looked, but just been dissecting this two-minute video on forgiveness. You know, they they just couldn't, they're, they're just delighted at the opportunity. Uh, of course, you know, it's easy to take theological pot shots at a two minute statement. <laughs> you sure, know, it's sure. not even expanded, but anyway, and then there were some people who were upset about my language. I used all this. It doesn't matter. But uh, then uh, apparently, because a, a friend of mine was, was sort of peeking in on these conversations, it devolved into, well, you know, when I met her and she signed my book, it was like she didn't even really care about me. 
Golly. And I'm like, and Excuse I'm like, me? I don't know. I'm you. like, I don't like what it's hilarious to me that the thing people seem to be attracted to is my authenticity, but then they'd really want me to fake it in the book signing line and pretend like I'm somebody I'm not and fawn over them and ask them personal questions and show great interest in them as an individual. One of, you know, 50,000 individuals I'm interacting with right. every year. Right, know? right, exactly right. So, um, so it's interesting. Um, I think the only way to stay sane if your life expands in a public way is for it to contract in a private way. I think so too. It's very interesting. Somebody sat down uh, recently and said to me, um, I, I know that everybody wants to be your best friend. And my immediate response was, you know, my world is getting, my personal world is getting smaller and smaller. We now have 18 individual human beings in our family. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's mm -hmm. about it, right? Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's about what I've got uh, yeah. enough to give to and still give publicly. So um, I want to change the subject for a minute, and I want to talk about the fact that Joe Stabile, who you know I admire unendingly, says mm -hmm. that you're one of the best theologians on the planet. Oh, gosh. And, you know, uh, when you're with us in our home, mm -hmm. I always want to love you well. And mm -hmm. maybe the time before last when you were with us, you were writing a sermon, and mm -hmm. I... Um, in my normal, usual way, was probably putting a plate of food in front of you and saying, <laughs> I think I can help with that sermon because let me tell you this story. <laughs> and you listened very uh, graciously, and then you said, I would never use somebody else's story in my mm -hmm. homilies or my sermons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I understand why that's important. But I wonder if you would expand on that a bit. Um, I, I'm not an academic theologian. I'm just a, a practical and sort of pastoral theologian. And so what that means to me is that I'm looking, I'm excavating the things that are happening in the world, the things that are happening in my own heart, the things that are happening in the lives of my parishioners. And I am trying to think theologically about those things. And as I read the text, I'm looking at the text for how do I examine these things through the lens of this text that I'm preaching on. And that's really all I do. And so um, it, it's all I really know how to do. So uh, ultimately in my preaching, I want to have my own heart broken in the process in some way. So right now I'm writing my penultimate sermon at my congregation. I'm only preaching two more times. Wow. Which just makes me um, just painfully sad. Yes, yes. <laughs> even, even though it's the right time to go. Um, and so uh, it's this you know text in Mark where... Um, his family thinks he's gone insane and they come to restrain him. And, uh, and he talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then he's like, 
you know, those who do the will of God are my brothers and sisters and mother. And it's, it's that third chapter of Mark. And so I'm looking at that and I'm going, oh my gosh, I had this conversation with one of my dearest friends. Now I would tell that, I will tell that story, right? Uh-huh. Even, and, and so she was talking about like her mom always said to her her whole life that she was, um, that she was kind of messy and irresponsible and and she just kind of messes things up all the time because she's so irresponsible. And then she's carried that with her into her adulthood and she's an Episcopal priest in her early forties. And her husband finally looked at her and went, "Um, can you give me one actual example in the last decade of your life where you messed something up because you were irresponsible and she couldn't. And yet she said this about herself and believed this about mm-hmm. herself her whole life, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that 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 when when Jesus is talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. It's not that this like oh you could murder your grandmother and kill kittens with abandon and that's forgivable, but if you say the Holy Spirit doesn't exist somehow you know, it's a mark against you for eternity. I think it's the the work of the Holy Spirit is what calls us to repentance, that it's the Holy Spirit stirring in us that calls us to think differently, to to have new awareness about ourselves and other people in the world, and that forgives our sins. And so if you say that's not possible, good luck ever experiencing it. Yeah. Right. So right. T- so if you say it can't happen and boy, that's our favorite pastime right now. Somebody makes one remark that's off. Yeah. And they are publicly slaughtered on Twitter. They are now an irredeemable person. Right. <laughs> because they made, right. And it's like we love that right now. And to me, it's like for Christians, we should always look at that as blasphemy. And that doesn't mean that we're exonerated from the harm that we've caused other people or that our remarks or that our actions hurt other people. It's not that people should not be called to count. It's not saying justice isn't important. It's saying we either believe in forgiveness of sins and redemption and reconciliation and repentance, or we don't. If that's just foundational to Christianity. It's also foundational eight justice, right? Mm. That's the kind yeah, of justice yeah, yeah. eights go after. Sure, sure, sure. So yeah. um, I, I, I want to just make a comment about that, and then I want to ask you three more questions. Um, so the comment is this. Um, do you think it could be because the fastest way to make a group cohere is around a common enemy? Yes. And that we feel so (laughs) divided all the time that we now settle for moments of coherence Mm. uh, Mm. in Mm. the social media world uh, Mm. around a common enemy. And it's a it I think it's terribly destructive. Mm -hmm. I agree. Terribly destructive. Yeah, it is, but it's this is what we love, right? I mean, this is why when Brian Williams, you know, yeah. uh, the, the newscaster exaggerated a personal story in his life, we slaughtered him. Yeah. We we had to then 
put all of those icky feelings that we ever had about when we exaggerated personal stories and then we had to put all those icky feelings on him and kill him this is what a scapegoat that's the function of scapegoat plays in the same with Rachel Donazal, you know, uh, who who said she was African American when she's white. Boy, we what pleasure we all took in slaughtering her. Also, uh, the bonus is that any any cultural appropriation that might have made us feel icky, uh, we got to just give to her, and then she carries all of it for us. This is why we also love uh, having alcoholics in our lives because we never have to look at our own drinking, right? I mean, the, there's a million ways that this is how humanity tries to function. Yeah. And let and yet Jesus interrupts that every time over every single time every time yeah all right um, what would you tell uh, what what piece of wisdom would you offer to thirty um, year old female eight mm. in our culture uh, to do everything in your power to understand the difference between a reaction and a response. Mm -hmm. That's great. Be yeah. 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 You will save yourself a lot of pain and other people a lot of pain. The number of times I, I just write an email response right away. Don't even say, don't, I mean, it's just a one sentence thing and shoot it off. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, good Lord, Nadia, come on. Like, give it a minute. Like, I feel like, to me, my reactions to things, I feel everything in my gut. Just everything feels like a punch in the gut. Yeah. And it's like I have to defend myself from that punch in the gut. And so I do that by immediately reacting to things. And it's almost never helpful to me or anyone else. No, oh, that's good. Um, okay. Well, I, I don't know how many people on the planet have had an opportunity to hear any are part of your new book. Mm. And um, I, I want to say that based on what I know about what you're writing about and what I know of you, I'm not sure. I, I think it had to be a female who wrote the book. Mm. And I'm pretty clear that uh, only an eight could do it. You know, I, mm. I say that only Richard Rohr uh, could have written as... Um, perfectly as he has about uh, duality and non-duality because he's a one on the Enneagram. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me, Suze, why you think an eight specifically had to write. And, and for people who don't know, the book doesn't come out till January, and it's called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, where I just sort of, my publisher said, did you scan the horizon for the biggest giant and went, and go like I'll slay that one. <laughs> yep. So anyway, uh, tell me why you think an eight had to write that? Because they, you answered it yourself. Because they scan the horizon mm -hmm. for the biggest giant out there, yeah. and then they feel like they have to slay it. Yeah, yeah. And and you know it really did. I hadn't really thought about it till you just said it. But um, this this book came out of my personal experience, but really came out of this anger. I had look pastoral anger is what it came from because I looked I looked at how much harm uh, exists in my parishioners' lives and bodies and stories as a result of that the church told them about sex and sexuality and gender and bodies 
And, and it was a, a pastoral anger that made me go, I have to write this book. Enough's enough. Enough is enough. We have to stop. We can never be more loyal to a doctrine or an idea or an interpretation of a Bible verse than we are to people. Yeah, and to the natural instincts of people. Yeah, so totally. um, to, to advertise something that's not scheduled, and it'll probably be months from now, I want to do a podcast with you and Joe after your book comes out. Oh, I, oh my gosh. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you know that I want to do that because yeah. Joe, all of his life, wanted to be a priest. Yeah. And um, he uh, went to seminary at 14, 13 actually, and he was 100% truly celibate until he was 40. And I can't tell you in the last 30 years how many times we've talked about what that cost him. Yeah. And all of the mm -hmm. stuff that was made up, uh, uh, that he made up about himself mm -hmm. because of that rule that mm -hmm. really came into the Catholic Church based on land ownership. It had... Mm. Nothing to do with sexuality, but that's where they mm. decided to put it. And I, mm. I, I, um, I'm just so hopeful that the work that you have done on the book and the work that you'll do around the book mm. is going to cut back on the shame that people feel for being passionate human beings who are oh, instinctually yeah. attracted to other human beings. It's like <laughs> right. we're being punished for being ourselves. Well, and for an aspect of human flourishing that the creator endowed in humanity, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like w enough is enough. It's just, it has caused more harm than good. It has caused so much harm. So I, you know, you know, a lot of pastors choose to know what their parishioners are giving to the church. They want to know what their stewardship practices yeah. are because the, uh, the wisdom goes, it's a sign of their spiritual health. Now, I never did. I, I never knew because I'm not spiritually mature enough for that to not matter, right? <laughs> There's no way if the biggest complainer in church wasn't giving any money that that would factor against them in our interactions, right? So I just, I just never wanted to know. But why is, like, how is your, like, are you, do you have a flourishing sex life? Why is that not a pastoral concern? Why is that not an aspect of somebody's spiritual life? You know, like what, how are you relating to yourself as a sexual being? Is that aspect of you flourishing? Because like nobody, only my closest friends who knew about my marriage, maybe two people, maybe three, um, had concern for me because they knew that that part of my life was completely shut down. Yeah. And why is that not something that we have a concern for each other for? You know, it's supposed to be part of this, of a flourish, the flourishing of the human being. And it's good. I mean, it is like, it, like, it's good for our bodies and our brains. It's like God's reset button. You know what I mean? Like the, the chemicals that course over your brain during sex are, are like God's reset button. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Isn't it interesting that we spent the last 40 years talking about holistic health 
and it didn't include that. Yeah, but you know what's interesting? There's this massive work, um, you know, company called Wanderlust, which is like they describe them. They're almost like the Starbucks of yoga, right? But it, but they're really in the wellness yeah. scene, and they have a huge wellness festival in Palm Springs this fall called uh, Wellspring, and I'm one of the keynote. I'm one of the keynote speakers talking about what does sexual wellness look like when you were raised with really damaging religious messaging about your own sexuality. So good. So, That's so, so I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, it's starting, you know. Well, let me tell you what else I'm thankful for. Mm. Our friendship. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast today. And um, I hope that if we can be supportive in any way of your new book that you'll let us know and I hope I run into you somewhere soon and um, you know well, as always I wish for you so much good I know you do I, I, yeah, I've learned just so much from you over the years but also you've just loved me very well over the years and in a, in a, in a more sort of you know private way and, and for that I'm really grateful too I love you Sus. I love you too thanks Thank you for joining me again today. I'd love to see you in person. I'll be in Boise, Idaho, July 19th to the 21st, teaching the Thinking, Feeling, Doing Church with Joe. August 2nd to 5th, we have Boot Camp 2 here in Dallas. This year, we're going to talk about relationships, parenting, and the Enneagram in Crisis. And August 24th and 25th, I'll be in Kansas City, teaching Know Your Number. All of the information you need can be found at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. I hope to see you there. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.